All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. So good to worship God together. Let me invite you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter two this time. So we're making progress uh, ever so slowly, but making progress. Genesis chapter two, let me welcome those of you who are with us here in the room, those of you joining us on live stream. Thanks for joining in as we study God's word together and walk through these opening chapters of the book of Genesis. I'm gonna start reading in chapter two, beginning in verse one, if you'd follow along as I read. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. So imagine a scene with me for, for just a moment. It's just before sunset on a Friday evening and people all over this town are getting ready for something. They know that there's a celebration that begins, a major celebration, and they're frenetically preparing final, making final arrangements, running around, making sure they've got groceries, they've got supplies for the evening celebration. And about a half an hour before the sun goes down, a group of men dressed in black suits and black hats come out and they start blowing horns. They're running through the city blowing horns and these horns are essentially alarm clocks notifying everybody, sun is going down very soon, wrap up your purchases, get everything arranged and get inside, get home, the celebration begins momentarily, and if you were visiting that town as an outsider and you weren't observing the events of the evening and if you waited until about 15 minutes after those men came running through with their horns, about 15 minutes later, the streets would be very, very quiet. There would be almost no movement on the streets around you and you could walk down those streets and inside the homes, as you're walking down, inside the homes, candles were being lit and families were gathering and friends were gathering around a table, around a feast, and prayers would be prayed. And if, if it was in the summer and the windows were open, you could actually walk down the street and hear people singing from inside their homes. And that scene is basically every Friday night in Jerusalem for now running 3,500 years over 180,000 Friday nights in steady sequence. That's what they're doing ever since the time of Moses. One of the most important themes of the whole Bible is the theme of rest. The word Shabbat or Sabbath, it just simply means stop, cease. And that's what you see actually physically happening in the city where that is celebrated by many and most of the people. So we're gonna track the progression of the theme of rest in three stages here this morning. We're starting with this, rest in creation. And we'll come back to those words in the parentheses when we get to the end, but rest in creation. So the seventh day culminates, it's the culminating moment of the entire creation narrative that we've been walking through these past few weeks. So we've divided up the creation narrative in a few different bites, right? So we've already spent three weeks dividing this passage up. But if you take it as an entire literary unit, the literary unit runs from chapter one, verse one, through chapter two, verse three. 
And there's a lot of language that suggests that that's where the chapter break should have been, is at the end of verse three. One of the things we saw a couple weeks ago is how Moses is writing with a lot of intentional language and even counting the numbers of words that he uses so that there's all these sevens that are appearing. There's a couple of tens, there's some threes, but there's all these sevens everywhere. It features prominently, so for example, we didn't see this a couple weeks ago, but I'll point it out this morning. The very first verse of Genesis chapter one is seven words in Hebrew. The very second verse of Genesis chapter one is 14 words, so it's two times seven words. And then when you come to the end of this section, this literary unit, it closes with three lines that are seven Hebrew words each. So it's one times seven, two times seven, three times seven, so Moses is pulling out all these fireworks of, of literary words so that he can point us to the fact that this is the apex of the creation week, the high point of the narrative when after completing his work, God rested. And here's one of the big ideas, so don't miss it. God's rest is not his exhaustion, but his enthronement. It's not his exhaustion, but his enthronement. It's not that God is tired after six days of working and he needs a breather. No, he is sovereign. He could do this all day long. He speaks and creates worlds, right? So here's what's happening. God has built his cosmic temple and on day seven, he moves in and sits on the throne and presides over his cosmic temple. He dwells in it and he rules over it. What you may have noticed when we were studying this a couple of weeks ago, is that there's a formula for even the way that each day is described. And each day gets closure. There's a formula of closure. So chapter one, verse five, if you just look down at the text with me for a second, you'll see how each day ends. Chapter one, verse five, there was evening and there was morning one day. And every day is gonna get that same closure formula. Verse eight, you see it? Evening and morning, day two. Verse 13, evening and morning on day three. Verse 19, there was evening and morning on day four. Verse 23, there was evening and morning on day five. Verse 31, there was evening and morning on day six. And you get to day seven and there's no evening and morning on day seven. That formula is missing. And we don't think that Moses just forgot to add it. He added it every single day and he he forgot. No, there's purpose, there's theology packed in this missing closure on day seven, one author writes these words, it's as if this day never ended. It's as if it is waiting for something or someone to bring it to a close. Now, hold that thought, because when we come over into the New Testament, we're gonna meet the person who brings closure and resolution to the day of rest. He's gonna call himself the Lord of the Sabbath. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. We'll get there momentarily, but here's the next point. God took his throne and his image bearers began their work. And isn't that the pattern that you see there? God creates, he forms, and he fills, and then he takes his throne and he rests, and then he tells those who are created in his image to form and to fill and to multiply 
and to subdue and to have dominion. So he, he, in his position of having worked for six days and he rests, he invites them into that same kind of pattern. I love what Nancy Guthrie writes in her excellent book, Even Better Than Eden. She writes these words, in resting from his work of creation when it was done, God was setting before Adam something to look forward to when Adam's work of subduing the earth, exercising dominion over it, and filling it with image bearers was done. There was an implied promise, work and you will rest with me. Adam was to emulate the divine pattern of working six days and resting on the seventh day. We don't know how long this pattern of work and rest would have continued until Adam had completed his work and entered into a permanent Sabbath rest. But what we do see is that Eden at the beginning was not like it was intended to be forever. So God takes his throne and his image bearers begin their work. The next point's this, God's working and resting established a pattern for us. Notice what this pattern is, and also I would encourage you to notice what this pattern isn't. The pattern at creation, the design of God, isn't six days of kicking back and one day of working. And neither is it seven days of kicking back and just, you know, he's on his throne, let's just kick back and, and enjoy, right? No, it's, it's six days of working and one day of resting. Notice something else, not only is it not six days of resting and one day of working, it's not seven days of working to you industrious souls who consider it kind of the, the, a badge of honor that you're working top to bottom, burning the candle at both ends, right? Psalm 127 is a song that the people would, would sing themselves into a, a biblical view of rest. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food, but he gives to his beloved sleep. They sang this truth so that they could remember God has designed us so that we can work meaningfully and then we can rest. He, our God never sleeps and he never slumbers, but we need sleep. And he gives to his beloved sleep. So before Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the pattern was six days of fruitful labor and one day of rest. But there's a, there's a big there's a big moment that we're gonna come to in a couple of chapters, right? Actually in chapter three. And it tells us this, the fall messed with our rest. The fall messed with our rest. Adam and Eve, you might know this story, they were deceived in the garden. They rebelled against God's command. We call it the fall, that's the term that we sometimes use, because the whole world changed. Everything went sideways. It was a massive fall. Our relationship with God was changed. Our relationship with one another, other human beings, changed. Our relationship, the harmony that Adam and Eve enjoyed with creation itself, that also changed. And something else changed, namely rest. Rest was ruined by the fall. We became restless. We sing a great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Do you know the first description of the first human being ever born of woman is in chapter four, verse 12? Cain was a, quote, restless wanderer on the earth. So even when, you fast forward, you keep reading the Bible, 
And you fast forward past the days of the Exodus, past the wilderness generation, into the days of conquest. Now they're going into the promised land, stripping with milk and honey. God is inviting his people into rest, and it didn't take. The rest didn't happen. They continued to be restless. Hebrews is gonna talk about that. Let us not, like they did, fail to enter into their rest. They were still restless. And you come over all the way into the New Testament, pages of the New Testament, and Jesus, half of his fights with the Pharisees were about what? The Sabbath. What you were supposed to do on the Sabbath, the theology of the Sabbath. So Jesus comes and, and he heals a woman on the Sabbath day. And this is a woman who the text says has been literally physically bent over for 18 years. And he sees this woman saddled with pain. She is literally weary and heavy laden. And Jesus gives her rest. And he gives her rest on the Sabbath day. And they say, you can't do that. You can do it tomorrow. You can't do healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus said basically, find a better day to unsaddle people from their burdens than the Sabbath day. I picked the perfect day to relieve weary and burdened souls and I did it on a Saturday. Reminds us that God's work lifts our burdens. That's the day, the Shabbat is stop and remember God's work lifted your burdens. God's work set you free. Not your work, God's work set you free. And that leads us to the next point. So we see rest and creation, we see rest and rescue. So remember who the original audience was that Moses is writing these words in Genesis 1, 2, right? It's Israelites who are wandering through the wilderness. They have just been rescued from slavery in Egypt. It's the wilderness generation. They're headed toward the promised land. And as they would continue reading the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, they're gonna find out, how do we end up working all that time? How do we end up slaves for 450 years in Egypt? How did that story happen? In case they didn't know the story, Moses, under divine inspiration, tells them, here's how you showed up in Egypt. And here's kind of a summary of how that happened. Exodus, the very first chapter of Exodus, verse seven, reads this way. Notice that these words should be ringing some bells for us because we've been studying Genesis chapter one. The Israelites, it says, were fruitful and multiplied and became extremely numerous so the land was filled with them. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right? Verse eight, a new king came to power in Egypt and he said, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies. So the Egyptians assigned, and now here come all the labor words, taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. So here we are, several generations away from the story at the beginning, and the people are slaves and we're finding out what's going on. So let's check in on God's people in Exodus 1. Are they fruitful? The answer is yes. Are they multiplying? There again, check. 
Are they working? Yes, they were designed to work, but are they resting? No, and even the nature of the work they're doing isn't the nature of God's design for work. So what does God do because his people are not enjoying any rest and are working under ruthless conditions? He comes and he rescues them. God says through Moses to Pharaoh, the king of the world, and he says, let my people go. And we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. And it's as though Pharaoh said, well, show me the two different options. And God says, so the easy way is you just let them go. Trust me, that's your best move. You let the people go with me that they may go out and serve me. That's your best option. The other option is I'll publicly humiliate the gods that you worship. I'll take them out one by one, all 10. I'll snatch the life out of your firstborn and then I'll bury your entire army under the water. And Pharaoh thought he was bluffing. (laughs) And he found out the hard way that God wasn't bluffing. Pharaoh chose option two. And when God sent Moses, amazing language, when God sends Moses to get his people, Moses said these words, Exodus 14. Moses said, fear not, stand firm. Sit there, stand there and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be still. It was a lab exercise in being still and knowing that he is God. In their stillness, the sovereign God worked their rescue. God instituted Sabbath to remind them his work will lead to their rest. His work will lead to their rest. And then the institution of Sabbath was basically a built-in weekly rhythm. It was a tutorial. It was a catechism at Sunday, sundown, every Friday. The message was, hey, everybody, remember Egypt? Remember our taskmasters? Remember how the gods of Egypt depended on our work. They couldn't even give us one day off. They depended on our work. And remember, remember how the story went next? Remember when our God schooled the gods of Egypt? And the story in every Sabbath evening was this. God doesn't depend on our work. We depend on his. That's the message that came through every Friday night. God doesn't depend on our work. We depend on his Christian friend. We need to know this as well. You think about it. God's kingdom doesn't grind to a halt when you rest. God's kingdom doesn't grind to a halt when you punch out, when you're resting, when you're in recovery, right? We're walking through, as it were, the New Testament will talk about us, Christians, all of us, being exiles in this world. We're citizens of another kingdom and we're exiles in this world. And there's that sense in which, hearkening back to the Old Testament, we are walking ourselves through the wilderness, the scorching wilderness, and the wise receive shade as a blessing. You think about it, God isn't glorified by you resisting rest. I need that statement as much or more than anybody in this room. God isn't glorified by you resisting rest. That's called arrogance. We resist Sabbath to our own peril. We don't resist Sabbath with impunity. Resisting Sabbath hurts us because God has designed us to need rest. It made the top 10 list. 
God says so, I'm gonna tell you 10 things, really important. Don't kill people. <laughs> don't lie, honor your parents, and don't resist rest. You need rest, it makes the top 10 list, which leads to our final point. We've seen rest in creation, rest and rescue, and finally rest in Jesus. So the Old Testament prophets were predicting the coming of someone. They were saying that someone is gonna come along and our exile will end. And it's gonna be the ultimate year of Jubilee. It's gonna be a year where favor breaks out on us like rain and debts will be canceled and everybody's going free. Slaves are gonna go free. You keep following into the pages of the New Testament when that one arrives and his name is Jesus and he says the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath and the Lord of the Sabbath walks into the synagogue on the perfect day of the week on Sabbath day and he says show me the scroll of Isaiah and he pulls Isaiah's scroll down and his very first opening sermon in Luke chapter four, here's his text, he read, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. What do those words mean? After Jesus rolled up the scroll, having read Isaiah, and he says to a tired world full of sinners, everybody who's tired, come with me. It's freedom time. It's jubilee time. It's rest time. And whomever the sun sets free is free indeed. And he never leaves, he stays on message. You keep listening to him and you're gonna see him in Matthew chapter 11 and he's holding out his arms and he says, come to me, all you who are what? Weary and heavy laden, bent over in this world. And he says, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am meek and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's gracious word to a weary world is I will give you rest. No wonder the Christmas carol that we sing every Advent season, it speaks of the effect of Messiah's arrival on the world and it says it this way, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. It's important for us when we're studying any text of scripture to go back and make sure the bridge connects back to the original context. That way we can hear it the way the original audience heard it. But it's also important to make it back to the other side of the bridge where we live here in 2022. If we don't make it back to the other side of the bridge, we don't know how this actually impacts our own lives. We never make it back to the world where you and I live where you and I are actually tired where you and I are actually weary and heavy laden. The great hymn writer, Horatius Benar, he sensed his need for gospel rest and he wrote these words. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. 
No other work but yours. No other blood will do. No strength but that which is divine can bear me safely through. I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine. And with unfaltering lip and heart, I call this savior mine. His cross dispels each doubt. I bury in his tomb each thought of unbelief and fear, each lingering shade of gloom. I praise the God of grace. I trust his truth and might. He calls me his. I call him mine, my God, my joy, my light. Tis he who saveth me and freely pardon gives. I love because he loveth me. I live because he lives. You can live today. You can find rest in Christ alone, by faith alone, looking at his cross alone as the all-sufficient place where we find peace with God, rest in God. Friends, put your trust this morning Put your trust in Jesus Christ alone and you will find rest for your restless soul. Ever since the institution of the Sabbath, what happens? The same thing for 182,000 Friday nights. Evening settles in and everybody Shabbats. Everybody stops. Everything ceases. And why do they do it? They cease, they stop in order to rest in the completed work of God on their behalf. Isn't it interesting that that's been the story for 3,500 years every Friday evening and then we know as Christians 2,000 years ago there was a special Friday evening. One hallowed Friday evening where God accomplished his redemptive work and it was completed just before nightfall on that Friday night. You think about the connections here. So back in Genesis chapter two, God completed his work of creation and he sat down in Sabbath rest and in sovereign rule. And then 2,000 years ago, God the Son, having completed his work of redemption, shouted, it is finished. It's complete. And what did he do? He sat down in Sabbath rest and in sovereign rule. Hebrews says, after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down in sovereign rule and in Sabbath rest. The pattern of God's new creation rest links all the way back to the second page of the Bible, Genesis chapter two, and the pattern goes something like this. A work completed, God enthroned, and a work begins. A work completed, God enthroned, and a work begins. God completes his creation work, takes his throne, and then commissions Adam and Eve to rule, to be fruitful, and to multiply. And then Jesus completes his redemption work, takes his throne, and with sovereign authority, he says, all authority in heaven is given to me, and he commissions his disciples, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, to go and make disciples, and to be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. 
patterns are there. They are firmly in place. He tells them, just like in Genesis, where it says that fruit trees bear fruit trees according to their kinds. He says, your disciples make disciples. Bear fruit after your own kind. Multiply disciples in the world. Friends, our lives are deeply formed by three Sabbath truths, which connect to each of the main points we've studied so far. Rest in creation, God is sovereign. Rest and rescue, slaves go free. Rest in Jesus, it is finished. And there are patterns of rest here in the Sabbath that remind and reorient us. Sabbath is formative for us. It's been formative for God's people for thousands of years and it's formative for us as well. There are at least three truths I'll leave us with before we close. Number one, how are we reminded and reoriented? We're reminded of this, God never sleeps but we must. God isn't fighting for control of the world. And if you're fighting for control of your world, you've confused your role with his. Get your eight hours. Go for a walk. Repent of your multitasking, your incessant multitasking. (laughs) God never sleeps, but we must. Second, it's not easy to rest in God. Fascinating language in the book of Hebrews where it says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Strive to rest. Why? Because resting doesn't come easy for restless people. Hasn't been easy for 2,000 years, still not easy. So we strive to enter that rest. We have restless hearts, we have anxious hearts. The impulse to look up and out to Christ in faith, that impulse is formed in us. It is cultivated in us by a couple of gifts that God has given to his church. The grace and gift of collective memory in corporate worship. By the same book that says strive to enter that rest says do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. But all the more as you see the day drawing near, encourage one another. You need this encouragement. You need these gatherings. I need these gatherings. It's formed in us by collective memory and repetition and it's formed in us by dependent prayer. You ever think about what's the reason that Christians ended up resetting the calendar. Right? Why do we Christians gather for worship not on the seventh day, but on the first day of the week? It's on the first day of the week that we come together and do the things that have been done on the Sabbath, where we read the scriptures out loud, the public reading of scripture, and we sing together, and we feast at a table together. We do that all on the first day of the week. What, what would change the calendar? It goes all the way back to design on page two of the Bible, why would we change it? If there was ever an event that could reset the calendar from culminating on day seven to something else, that event would have to be cataclysmic. Like something like, say, Jesus Christ, the first fruits of the new creation, rising from the dead at first light on the first day of the week. That would do it. And that's why since the tomb was empty, Christians said, let's gather then. Let's be Sunday morning people. The old creation in Genesis starts with an empty world. The new creation starts with an empty tomb. 
new creation songs. The old creation week, think about this. The old creation week, we worked toward rest. The new creation week, we work from rest. We remind ourselves, we rest in Jesus and then we go to our work. And there's a future rest for us. Rest is coming for all who believe. We too have these same promises that as we are walking through exile, God is leading us to the promised land. He is leading us forward to the new Jerusalem. I'll I'll close with this, but, but think with me. For us, when does the day begin? The day begins in the morning. Right, that's how we mark a day. Monday begins when you wake up on Monday. Sun rises on Monday, there, there's Monday. Right, that's not how they marked time in the Old Testament, in the biblical Hebrew scriptures. They marked time and it started at night. That's why every single day it says, there was evening and there was morning, day one. There was evening and then there was morning, day two. Perhaps, I wanna suggest to us as we close, perhaps there's a lesson tucked inside that as well, something like this, that unlike us, God isn't scared of the dark. God has done his best work at nightfall from the beginning. His work at nightfall in the darkness of the void in Genesis chapter one, verse two. His work in the darkness outside Bethlehem when the angel appeared to the shepherds. His work in the darkness at midday on the day we've come to call Good Friday. The psalmist would sing these words, Psalm 139, 12. Dark is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Sabbath is a tutorial. Sabbath is catechesis. It is catechism and it's teaching us night falls and we light the lamps. Night falls and we gather around the table and we sing the songs and the feast begins. Weary believer, Sabbath is saying to you this morning, God can give you songs in the wilderness. God can give you songs in the night and God will make good on all his promises. That's Sabbath theology.